Good morning, everyone. It's a real blessing to be back with you after some time of absence. I want to thank you all for your prayers and support. We had a very fruitful journey. 12,339 miles in about a month's time. I want to thank the church for the support it gave to help us with our traveling expenses on this trip. At the end of the day, the monies that you all gave covered most of the gas and the lodging that we had to... uh, uh, We used it up. We used it up. And uh, what was beyond that was provided for as well. So thank you for that. And uh, Ricky and Bishnu should be arriving shortly. Thank you for your prayers and your hosting of them while they were here. Um, In the coming weeks, we're not going to be looking at Revelation. We'll get into that after the first of the year. But I want to preach uh, along the lines of what we are uh, uh, talking about with with the kids and these activities regarding the advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So uh, if you'll bear with me and indulge me, I hope I get finished this morning. This is a very pregnant topic of our Lord and when He came, what He did. You see, the Christmas story is not an isolated story. It's not an isolated event that we should just cut out of Scripture and have a feast about and then kind of forget about the rest of it. It's not something we should pull out for a couple of weeks out of the year. The Christmas story is part of a much larger context. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a lot more happened than just a baby born in a manger. And when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and He did exactly in His birth, His life, His death, burial, and resurrection what the Scriptures said He would do, it ensures us that He will come again and do exactly what God's Word says He will do. So, if anything, the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ guarantees... The first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ guarantees His second advent. And as the remnant, the faithful remnant in that dark day in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago was watching and waiting for Him because they knew the Scriptures, so should we. We live in a dark, dark time. Not unlike the land of darkness in which the light shined 2,000 years ago. And like the faithful remnant who knew the Scriptures... We should be in the Scriptures watching and waiting and praying for the second advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn to Psalms 12 this morning. Psalm number 12. I'm going to read two verses. When we think about the birth of Jesus Christ and how it fulfilled very specific and very detailed prophecy, not just a little prophecy in Isaiah 7, Verse 14, not just a couple of verses in Isaiah 9, not just an isolated passage in Micah 5, verse 2, but in specific prophecy throughout the entire Tanakh or the Old Testament that God gave to the people of Israel that we have and hold as the Word of God today. When we consider that the birth of Christ was fulfillment of this prophecy, we can learn a very important lesson. Psalm 12, 6, and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. 
Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I'm going to read verse 8. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest of men are exalted. When we live in a time that vile men are exalted to places of leadership, it means the wicked walk on every side. It's a dark time. When Christ was born in Bethlehem in a manger, it was a time when the vilest of men were exalted in places of leadership in Israel, in the Roman Empire, and the wicked walked on every side. Yet, even in a time when wickedness walked on every side, the Lord kept His Word and the Lord preserved His Word. If anything, the advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and how it fulfills prophecy ought to teach us and ought to assure us that God's Word is pure, that God's Word is kept, and that God's Word is preserved. The reason people were expecting the Messiah 2,000 years ago is because they knew what God's Word says. And the reason we should be expecting our Lord to come for His church is because we know what His Word says. And just as God kept it 2,000 years ago, He'll keep it with everything yet unfulfilled. So our lesson concerning Advent this morning ought to be that God's Word can be trusted. And then if you're a Christian who truly understands and appreciates the Christ child, then you believe that the Bible is the Word of God and from that you will not back away. There is no such thing as a Christian that doesn't believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Just like there's no such thing as a Christian that says he's a homosexual. There's no such thing as a Christian that voted for Hillary Clinton. There's no such thing as a Christian who says the Bible is anything other than the Word of God. Fulfilled prophecy is the main proof that the Bible is the written Word of God. Fulfilled prophecy, not general stuff that can be fulfilled in many different ways like the Quran claims, but detailed fulfilled prophecy is the biggest proof that this is God's Word and that it is of supernatural origin, that holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And we see fulfilled prophecy in the advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible makes more than 800 prophecies, detailed prophecies, all of which are removed far enough in time from, from their fulfillment that there can be absolutely no chance of accidents or coincidence. Of these 800 prophecies, roughly 300 of them have been fulfilled literally. And the 500 or so that remain are set to be fulfilled in the future. The probability that these 300 already fulfilled prophecies would come to pass by coincidence is mathematically, statistically, and scientifically Impossible. So when the Bible, as it does here in Psalm 12, speaks of itself as being the holy words, the pure words of the living God kept and preserved, it is speaking 
in this preacher's opinion, with mathematical and statistical certainty of a scientific fact. When it comes to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, when it comes to His advent, His birth, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and the building of His church, this book predicts 48 details of His life. Hundreds of years before He was born in that manger. And then it shows in the New Testament that these were fulfilled literally. Not symbolically or in dark riddles, but literally. The Bible then hazards its fullness on 500 more prophecies that are set to be fulfilled in the future. So in other words, the Bible shows itself to be true with a little less than half of its prophecies already and then it hazards its truthfulness on more yet to be fulfilled and isn't afraid to take that quote-unquote risk. The Hindu Shastras, the Vedic writings, the writings of Buddha, they don't dare hazard such detailed predictions. And the Quran, when you compare it with the Bible in respect of fulfilled prophecy, is like a tiny little anthill at the base of Mount Everest. The Lord gave the Word. The Lord keeps the Word. The Lord preserves the Word. And the coming of Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem is proof thereof. When we look at Messianic prophecy in the Word of God, I've just come off of a long journey that allowed us to minister to believers in some local churches to give them some tools about how to share the Gospel with Jewish people in their communities. The Gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And I had the privilege of telling many Israelis along our route that true Christians love the Jewish people. True Christians appreciate what the Jews gave to man, which is the Word of God through the Holy Spirit. And true Christians pray for the peace of Jerusalem and will be a friend to the Jew to harbor her from her enemies. <coughs> True Christians follow a Jewish Messiah that was prophesied in a Jewish Bible and was shown to be Messiah in a Jewish New Testament that's been given to us because Jewish people were obedient and faithful and believed. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about Messianic prophecies. There's ones we're familiar with. Ones that kind of become uh, cliches during the Christmas season. But there's a whole lot more that we're unfamiliar with. You see, Jesus didn't just fulfill Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Micah 5 too when He came to this earth. He fulfilled Scripture and prophecy in the books of Moses, uh, from Samuel all the way down to Malachi, in the Psalms. He's all over the Old Testament. That's why when we give a Jewish person a copy of the Old Testament in Hebrew, even if they won't receive a New Testament, we've done an amazing thing because there in their hand is the Word of God. The very Word that Jesus and the Apostles preach from. The Word that reveals Messiah Genesis to Malachi, or as it is in their Bible, from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. Same 39 books, just a little bit different order. But when we look at Messianic prophecies, just as we want to do this time of year, we need to remember some very important, what I call hermeneutic principles. 
Hermeneutics is the study of biblical interpretation. How to properly interpret or understand the Scriptures. We need to understand some important hermeneutic principles that I would like to share with you this morning. We've read some Scriptures. Brother Gene read some Scriptures from the book of Isaiah today. When we read these Scriptures about our Messiah in the Old Testament, first of all, we need to understand that every one of these cited verses has a larger immediate context that cannot be ignored. When we look at Messianic prophecy, when Isaiah tells us that, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, there's a much greater context there that cannot be ignored. When the Bible tells us in Micah 5.2 that out of Bethlehem will come a ruler, a governor, to, to judge and rule Israel, there's a much bigger context. It wasn't verse 2 that made Herod tremble. It was verse 2 that made him wroth and angry. It wasn't verse 2 that compelled him to slaughter the innocents in Bethlehem. There was a much larger context in the prophet Micah that gave him cause to fear. His foolishness was thinking that he could stop it. Micah 5.2, a prime example. You see, chapter 5 tells us far more details about Messiah than of the place of His birth. It talks about the millennial kingdom, the regathering of Israel into the land, references to Messiah's rejection at the cross, the battle of Armageddon, Antichrist, the church age, the deity of Messiah. It's all there in a larger context. So when we look at Messianic prophecy, don't cherry-pick Scriptures. Take time to see the larger context. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9. 1 and 2, 9, 5, and 6 that were read this morning are part of a much larger context. If you want to truly understand those Messianic prophecies, then you need to start at chapter 7, verse 1, and you need to go through the entire go all the way through chapter 11. It's all one giant context that reveals the amazing intricacies and details of God's Word and how He keeps it. Chapter 7, we have King Ahaz, the southern king, the kingdom of Judah, who is threatened by his enemies, the king of Syria, Rezin, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of the northern kingdom, and they're threatening an invasion. And things look bleak and dark. But God sends the prophet Isaiah to the king and says, you need not worry. These very powerful monarchs, within 65 years, their thrones won't even exist anymore. And then he says to Ahaz, ask a son and I'll prove it to you. Ahaz tried to be self-righteous. and God says, I'm going to give you a son. A virgin's going to conceive and bring forth a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And before he's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, these lands won't even have kings anymore. We get into chapter 8 and we see the shadow. Remember our discussion on Old Testament prophecy weeks and weeks and weeks ago how there's always a shadow fulfillment in that day to show that God means what He says? And there's, often, there's always an ultimate fulfillment telescope down through the ages involving Messiah? Well, exactly what God told Ahaz He would do, He did in the next chapter. Chapter 8, Isaiah goes into the prophetess and conceives and bears a son, Maher Shalahashbaz. 
And it's said that before he's old enough to discern his right and his left, to choose right and wrong, that the king of Syria, the king of the northern kingdom would be gone. And that's exactly what happened. It, uh, uh, Assyria invaded the land and removed the northern kingdom, carried it captive, and Syria was destroyed. It even came and spilled over into the southern kingdom, to the gates of Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah the king. All this is prophesied in chapter 8. We're told that Messiah will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, not just to the northern kingdom is going to be carried away, but to the people of Judah as well. So in this context, you get into chapter 8, Messiah... The child, Emmanuel, will be rejected by the people He came to save. But God always retains a remnant. We have a great contrast in these chapters between the nation that rejects its Messiah and the remnant. In chapter 8, verse 18, we're told that Isaiah's children that God gives him are signs and wonders to Israel. Maher Shalahashbaz, the shadow fulfillment of this prophecy of the virgin birth. You see, the difference between the shadow fulfillment is Isaiah went into a prophetess. Seems his first wife died and he took a virgin to be his wife and they bore a child, Marshallah Hashbaz, which means haste ye, haste ye to the spoil, judgment is coming. It was a sign and wonder in Israel. But in the ultimate fulfillment, a literal virgin who never was with a man would give birth to a son because she was conceived of the Holy Ghost. Amazing. I, I, I posted a, an article on Facebook this morning where there's some pastor, a woman pastor, that's an oxymoron, uh, just like Christian rocker and homosexual Christian, uh, that has gotten pregnant out of wedlock and, 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 and refuses to step down. And I don't even know how this junk makes the news. And I don't know who is the bigger fool. These people like this woman going around boasting in her pregnancy out of wedlock as a pastor or the fools that actually believe peoples like this are pastors or they are Christians or they are the church. And she justified her sin because Mary, the mother of Jesus, was pregnant out of wedlock. That's the reasoning that infests our church today. That's the foolishness that leads to destruction. Friends, these people aren't Christians they're not, they have no part in the gospel of Christ. They should be rejected. And Isaiah tells us in these prophecies of Messiah that that will be most of the land of Israel. But God always has a remnant because Isaiah's second or her oldest son, Shir Jashbub, means a remnant shall return. These were signs and wonders in Israel. Israel would be judged and scattered, but a remnant would return. It would reject its Messiah, but a remnant would call for Him. The nation versus the remnant. We learn about a dimness of anguish. The time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation that would come. But this dimness of anguish preceding Messiah wouldn't be like a dimness of vexation that will pre uh, uh, precede Messiah. You see, Israel's had two periods of dimness. Two periods of birth pangs. It was a dimness of vexation before Christ came the first time. We learn in chapter 9, the first couple of verses about Christ's ministry. How it would be a ministry that afflicts in a period of 
dimness, a dimness of vexation. And that ministry that afflicts, that ministry based in Galilee, would cause the people to be scattered. But the dimness of anguish, which would seem much worse, won't be like that vexation because it won't result in the nation being scattered. It will result in the nation being saved and restored. And Messiah works in both of those. It's amazing. Scattering versus regathering. Christ comes once to scatter. He comes a second time to regather and restore. His ministry, chapter 9, is summed up very succinctly. Three and a half years of ministry all over the Galilee is summed up very succinctly. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And my friends, just like when you flip on a light and it scatters the cockroaches and the bugs, when the light of Messiah shined in Galilee of the nations, it scattered the cockroaches and it afflicted the land of Israel. But it, gave, it opened a doorway for the Gospel to go to the Gentiles so that we too might be saved. Praise the Lord. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the focus of Jesus' ministry recorded there is the Galilee. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. He did exactly what the Scriptures very specifically said He would do. The book of John records more of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was born Jewish. Jesus kept the law. And when the Jews were to go up to Jerusalem to observe the feast like God commanded them to do, He went and was obedient. And He didn't go and celebrate. He went and preached. And that's primarily what we see in the book of John. But when Jesus came... He came to Galilee, one of the darkest places in all of Israel in that day where there was constant fighting, there was constant tension between Jew and Gentile, where the Romans were always having to put down some kind of a riot or some kind of uh, uh, civic disturbance. A place where Jews and Gentiles crossed paths and in that darkness a light shined. Messiah. See, there's a whole lot more there than just 7.14 and 9.5 and 6. We get further into chapter 9. We see the two comings of Christ. Christ came once. A child was born. A light shined in a dark place. Israel is scattered. But He comes again. And when He comes again, a child is not born. A son is given. And the government is upon His shoulders. A son is given that will break the rod of Antichrist and set up a kingdom to end the dimness of anguish. Chastisement would be upon a wicked and stiff-necked people and would continue upon them until they recognize their Messiah. The ultimate chastisement against Israel, Isaiah 10, would be Antichrist. But He is overthrown by the Son that is given and a remnant returns. And then the Netzer, chapter 11... The netzer, the rod, the stem out of Jesse. As it says in the Gospels, the Nazarene. That word Nazarene is a word that's synonymous with rejected. If you were a Nazarene, you were rejected. It was kind of a place where you, if you lived there, you were looked down upon. Nazarene is similar to the word netzer, which means a stem, a rod out of Jesse. Like a like a like a uh, a sprout. 
Jesus' ministry. Why did His parents take Him to Nazareth? Because His ministry would be in the Galilee. His ministry would result in being neglected. He fulfilled prophecy. But in Isaiah 11, the Netzer is no longer rejected. He sets up a kingdom. And in His kingdom, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The wolf will eat sheep like an ox and the children will play on the dens of snakes and spiders and won't be harmed. The world will return to the state in which it was in the Garden of Eden. You see, there's a much larger context that gives us a whole lot more information. The birth of Christ was one event in God's plan and purpose for the ages that will one day culminate in the child that was born, returning as a son that is given, and doing everything God said He would do. How do we celebrate Christmas without looking for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, without celebrating His literal coming kingdom? A second hermeneutical principle that you would do well to remember is that the prophecies of Christ's birth, or prophecies related to His first advent, They are never independent or isolated from His kingdom or His second advent. They're never separate. They're one. As certainly as Christ came the first time and was born in the manger and the shepherds came and saw and the wise men came, Christ will come again. Not some dark spiritual uh, way off in the future general judgment, but a literal physical return of a king who will sit on a literal physical throne in Jerusalem, who will set up a literal physical kingdom in which His saints reign with Him, in which true justice is served in this present world, and this earth goes back to what it was in the Garden of Eden. And God's plan for this earth and these heavens comes full circle before He destroys this earth and heaven and recreates. It's all together. You can't separate it. Turn to Jeremiah. And I would just take note of some of these passages this morning because these are probably messianic prophecies with which you're unfamiliar. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. And I'm going to ask Paul to read this one. He's got some practice. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Amen. See, God promised that He would raise up a righteous branch out of the lineage of David. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ 
was when he was born uh, of the lineage of David, both legally and genetically, and God raised up a righteous branch. And we often cite this passage at Christmas time, but understand, my friends, that most of this remains to be fulfilled. God raised up a righteous branch when God became man in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But Israel is yet to dwell safely. They have yet to come to a place where they no longer celebrate their deliverance from evil, but celebrate the Messiah who brought them back from their scattering, who restored them. See, you go to Israel today and speak with the Jews and speak to them about the Scriptures and their religion and it's always about Moses bringing them out of Egypt. It's always about Moses bringing them out of Egypt. But there's going to come a day when Israel talks about that as an old story, but what's at the forefront of their mind is that Messiah came and delivered us and regathered us. The Lord, our righteousness. Messiah is God. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He's a branch. And just as He was born into space and time, taking on His flesh, He was all these things when He was born, even though it remains unfulfilled. But just as He was born in space of time, in space of time, He will return and restore His people Israel. Here we have two advents of our Lord and Savior in one view. His birth his literal birth as a branch of the lineage of David is not independent of His second coming. You can't have one without the other. Turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. I'll read the first two verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Does that passage sound familiar from the New Testament? If you go to Luke chapter 4, Jesus, when He began His ministry in Nazareth, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he was asked to stand up and read. And he stood up and read exactly what I just read to you. And then he sat down. And every eye was fastened upon him. And he said, this, today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Christ fulfilled what I just read. But my friends, that's not all the prophecy. And there's a reason Jesus stopped right in the middle of a sentence, right where we see a comma. Because at that time, He didn't come to fulfill the rest of it. He came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, but Messiah also proclaims the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. And then in verse 3, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. Here we have both advents in one view. And when Jesus spoke those words or read those words and sat down and said, today this Scripture is fulfilled in your ears, He spoke the truth and He stopped in the middle of the sentence on purpose. But just as certainly as He did these things in verse 1 and started His ministry in a year of jubilee, He will certainly 
come again and declare the day of the vengeance of our God. And for Zion, uh, He will give them beauty for the ashes that have desecrated their land in the time of Jacob's trouble. Two hints in one view. So friends, remember when we read prophecies of our Lord in the Christmas season, there's always His second coming right there with it. And just as we rejoice in His birth, so should we rejoice in His second coming. The third principle that I think is very important here, and that's been lost in much of the church, those prophecies related to Christ's advent the first time, those prophecies related to His coming 2,000 years ago are shown in the New Testament to be fulfilled literally. Thus, there is no reason to think otherwise with regard to His second advent. When Christ came the first time, He fulfilled prophecy with regard to Israel, with regard to many things, literally 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel in the Roman Empire. When it speaks in the same passages about what He'll do with regard to Zion when He comes again to set up a kingdom, it's speaking literally. It's not speaking of an Israel that is a that is a, is a Gentile church that has replaced the Jewish nation. It's not speaking of some general judgment or some kingdom in the clouds that has no literal place on this earth. When people try to say that the church has replaced Israel, that Christ's coming is some distant event that no one can know, and yet claim that the Bible is true because Christ fulfilled prophecy literally when He came the first time, You've contradicted yourself. You've got a problem. Just as Christ fulfilled Messianic prophecy literally when He came 2,000 years ago, so He will do it again. Israel will be saved. The church will rule and reign with Him. There will be a throne of David in Jerusalem. There will be a kingdom, not a democracy. An absolute monarchy with an absolute monarch who rules in righteousness. As we saw here in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, Christ did that literally. When He came and preached in the land of Galilee, Gentiles of, uh, uh, the land of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, He preached good tidings. Good tidings were preached to the shepherds that night. He bound up the brokenhearted. He proclaimed liberty to the captives and set them free from their sickness and their diseases and even a few times from the throngs of death. He opened up the prison of those that were bound in spiritual darkness. He preached the jubilee, the year of the Lord. He literally did those things. So there's no reason to think when He comes the second time he won't do exactly what it says here in verses 3 and 4. A point, a point to them that mourn in literal Zion, not some code word for the Gentile church, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the waste cities. 
the desolations of many generations. No reason to believe that Messiah won't do exactly this. That He won't restore Zion. And that the waste places in Israel will be rebuilt again. And God will fulfill His promises to the descendants of Abraham. And we are a part of it as having partaken of those spiritual blessings. And we get to see it. Turn to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Prophecies related to Christ's first advent were fulfilled literally. Look at Jeremiah 31.15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Was that literally fulfilled when Christ came the first time? Absolutely. When Herod learned that he'd been deceived of the wise men, he was full of anger and wrath because he knew more than verse 2 in the prophecy of Micah chapter 5. And he sent his army or his troops to massacre the children in the land of Ramah in Bethlehem, the descendants of Rachel, to to massacre the children two years old and under. And there was great weeping and mourning in Ramah or in Bethlehem. That happened literally. It's recorded for us in Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. You can read on through the rest of Jeremiah 31. We're told that there's a day coming when you can stop mourning. What happened in Ramah is a picture of what would happen to Jewish people throughout their dispersion, throughout the church age. But there's coming a time when they can refrain their voice from weeping and their eyes from tears. The remnant can stop because their work will be rewarded. And then God goes on to talk about how Israel has rebelled against Him. And then you get down to verse 31. Remember, verse 15 was fulfilled literally. Why wouldn't the rest of it? Verse 31, that same chapter, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put My law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be My people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know Me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. If verse 15... And what Herod did to the innocents was fulfilled literally. There's no reason to think otherwise when it comes to the inhabitants of Israel and Judah. That there's coming a day when God gave them a new covenant. A covenant whereby the Spirit of God teaches them what they need to know on their hearts. And they will all know Him. That He will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. That will literally be fulfilled when Israel brought to her utter end calls out for Messiah. He comes and delivers them and all Israel remaining at that time 
who haven't been swept away in the judgment, all Israel, the entire nation living in at that time, will repent and be restored. Literally. What's interesting is God literally has already done for Israel what He said He would do in verse 31. They haven't believed upon it. They haven't received it in their hearts yet. But that new covenant has already been given. In the Hebrew there, those words, new covenant, are habarit hadashah. What does the word covenant mean? It's the same word that we translate also to be testament. When Jesus sat with His disciples around the Last Supper, He said, this is the blood of the New Testament in My blood. I mean, this is the cup of the New Testament in My blood. God gave them a Berit Chadashah. He gave them a New Testament. Most Jewish people look at a New Testament. They've been told by their religious rabbis that it's a Gentile book, that it's anti-Semitic, that it was written by Catholics, and that it's not even for them. But what's interesting is God says right here He would give them a Berit Chadashah. When we distribute these New Testaments to Jewish people, the very title is the exact same two words used here in this prophecy. New Covenant. Berit Chadashah. And we'll take them here and say, look, God said He would do it, so why are you surprised that what He said He would do is right here in my hand? And every one of the authors in this book was Jewish. And then we can open to the very first verse of the very first Gospel. And it's interesting, it takes us to the very events we're talking about today. This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's nothing anti-Semitic about that. God literally did what He said He was going to do. He gave them a New Testament. They've rejected it. But the time is coming when that law revealed here will be written on their hearts. The Holy Spirit will wake them up and they will repent and be saved. Just as Ramah and the children were slaughtered in literal fulfillment at Christ's first advent, so these things regarding Israel will be fulfilled at His second I praise God that on this latest journey, it cost us a lot more in gas than we thought it would, and to fly up to Alaska and back would have been much cheaper, much easier. But you can't put a price tag on long journeys that allow you to share the gospel with people that might not otherwise hear. We didn't even know if we'd find Israelis in malls. We see them around here a little bit. We often went through dry spells where we went to mall after mall after mall and saw no one. We just crumb the place with tracks. But at the end of this journey, it was amazing to look back and see that we walked, we scoured 36 miles between here in Alaska and back, Canadian and American. And of those 36 miles, we found lost sheep of the house of Israel in 18 of them. That's a 50% success rate. Praise God. And the scavenger hunt is part of the fun. In all of the encounters we had, 29 copies of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, full of these prophecies of Messiah, were received with gratitude in the hands of Jewish people living and working here in America who are Israeli citizens. And 19 of these Barit Chadashahs were received. Praise God! 19 New Testaments were received. And God's Word never returned. Some people say, well, that's not very many. 
I challenge you to go out on the streets here in America and see how long it takes you to give out an English Bible to the average person living in America. We can give out a lot over in Nepal. When it comes to Jewish outreach, that's an amazing thing. The God, the, the branch is budding again. The people are beginning to wake up. The prophecies are starting to show their fulfillment. Just as in the days of of Zacharias and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna and the others in Jerusalem that waited for redemption. So are we in the days when that redemption is closed. Our waiting should mirror theirs. When we look at the... I've given you some important hermeneutic principles here. Every verse cited as Messianic prophecy has a greater context that we can't ignore. We can learn much more about Messiah and about the Lord in that greater context. Prophecies of Christ's first coming are never independent of detailed prophecy concerning His second coming. And those related to His first advent are shown to be fulfilled literally in the New Testament. There's no reason to think otherwise when it comes to His second coming. We should be looking for literal fulfillment and praying that these things would come swiftly. But when we look at the Christmas story itself, we often few verses, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, sometimes Micah 5 too, and that's the extent of it. But Messianic prophecy is alluded to throughout the Christmas story. Throughout the recording of Christ's birth and His early life, there were fulfillments of many, many detailed prophecies. 48 details. And these things ought to give us great confidence in the Word of God. We often read the Christmas story and we don't consider how it's sandwiched. It's sandwiched in Matthew 1 and on the other side in Luke 3 with the genealogies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, His genealogy is traced from Abraham down through King David and Solomon and the kings of Judah down through the Babylonian captivity and those that returned to the land and rebuilt the temple down through the ages to Joseph, the son of Jacob, a carpenter. Jesus Christ was supposed to be the son of Joseph. Legally, He was the Messianic in the Messianic line. Legally, He was fine in the Messianic line. He descended right through David and his Sons who were kings, all the way down through the governors and the lawgivers, in fulfillment of Genesis forty nine ten, that a that a um, the scepter would not depart from Judah, a lawgiver would not cease to be in Judah until Shiloh came, and when Shiloh came, it stopped. He was the last king or lawgiver, and one day he'll sit on that throne. There's not been one since. When you get to Luke 3, we see that Jesus was genetically fine in the Davidic line. It traces Mary's genealogy down to Heli, who was the father-in-law of Joseph. You see, Mary's genealogy came through David's son Nathan and goes all the way down through the southern kingdom, the, the, the captivities and the return, and all the way down through the days of the Maccabees and the Greeks and the Romans to Mary's father, Heli. So sandwiched between these stories, we see fulfilled prophecy. Jesus was a son of Abraham. He was born of the tribe of Judah. Okay? 
Both of them were from the tribe of Judah. He was, both of them came from David. He was from the, uh, from the, the line of David. Okay? He was um, of the line of Jesse. All of these things. He was born in Bethlehem. They had to go back to Bethlehem for the census for the tribe of David in the days of that Roman rule. Those genealogies show us that he was exactly who God said he would be. A legal descendant of King David and a genetic descendant of him. And yet, born to a virgin, conceived by the Holy Ghost, untainted by the sin that is passed down from father to child. It's interesting, when God gives David the Davidic covenant, when He promises David that he will have a son to sit upon a throne and that the throne of his kingdom will be established forever and that his mercy, God's mercy would not be taken away from the line of David like it is from Saul. We see this in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. The focus of 2 Samuel 7 is primarily Solomon. But when you see it in 1 Chronicles 17, it's not Solomon, it's Mashiach. It's Messiah. Both are in view, but there's a primary focus that switches. In 2 Samuel 7, we're told that Mashiach would be out of David's own bowels. In 1 Chronicles 17, we're told that Mashiach would be of his sons. Mashiach was both. Mashiach was of his sons that sat on the throne legally to Joseph but he was also of his bowels through Nathan, one of his sons that didn't sit on the throne, and genetically all the way down to his mother, Mary. All of it fulfilled. God keeping the Davidic covenant. When you go to Luke chapter 1, and the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias, he makes allusion to messianic prophecy in Malachi 4. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, he alludes to Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 9, 5 and 6. When Mary praises the Lord, praises God her Savior. You see, one that's without sin doesn't need a Savior. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary too was born of a virgin and that Mary is without sin. That's just all Babylonian paganism. It goes back to Nimrod and his mother-slash-wife, Semiramis. Wickedness. But Mary in her Magnificat, Luke 1, 46-56, rejoiced in God her Savior. And when she did, her prayer amazingly echoes the prayer of Hannah when God gave her a child, Samuel. But did you realize that Hannah's prayer was prophetic? Hannah didn't just thank God for Samuel. She prophesied that a king would come. And in Mary, Hannah's prophetic prayer was fulfilled. Turn to 1 Samuel 2. I hope you're learning something you didn't know about before today. 1 Samuel 2. Hannah prays this prayer, rejoicing in God after lending her son to the Lord. But look at verses 10. Verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall He thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and He shall give strength 
unto His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. You know what that word anointed means? Messiah. Mashiach. Israel didn't have a king in the days of Hannah. There was no king in Israel. Saul came later. There was no king in Israel. What was she speaking? She was prophetically speaking of Messiah. That a king would come. God would give him strength and exalt him just like He had exalted her and her child to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. When Mary sings praises to God, in Luke chapter 1, prayer echoes this very prophetic prayer of Samuel. I mean of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and shows its fulfillment. When Gabriel comes to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 as he thought to put away Mary privily because she was pregnant, and what other thing can you think but that she had, com- that she had, had committed fornication? What else was he supposed to think? But he was a righteous man. Didn't want to make a public example out of her. And Gabriel came to him. And when he did so, he reminded him of the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And said, this is that fulfillment. That's why Joseph believed. When the wise men sought the star, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. The prophecy of Balaam in Numbers 24.17 was fulfilled. Herod and the chief priests and scribes in Matthew 2 searched the Scriptures. Where must Messiah be born? And they found that great prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. When Joseph and Mary took the Christ child and fled into Egypt, they literally fulfilled prophecy in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Herod slaughtered the little babies, what he did is no different than what we do in our country today with the unborn and these abortuaries. Shame on this wicked nation. When Herod slaughtered the babies in Matthew 2, Jeremiah 31.15 that we spoke of a moments ago was literally fulfilled. And when Joseph returned from Egypt and moved his family to Nazareth, Isaiah 11.1 was fulfilled. Isaiah 53 began to be fulfilled. And Isaiah 9 and 2 started its fulfillment. Messiah based His ministry in Galilee because His family moved Him there. He shall be called a Nazarene. It doesn't say that directly in the Old Testament, but what that's summing up is what it says in Isaiah 11. He's a Netzer. A stem out of Jesse. He's a Nazarene. That, that, that's basically a way of saying He will be Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53, if you want to sum up Isaiah 53 with one word, Nazarene. Because a Nazarene was rejected. It was, a, it was a word of, it was an idiom that meant rejected. They moved literally to Nazareth and Messiah would be rejected. Just like Isaiah 53. And of course, Nazareth's right there in the heart of Naphtali and Zebulun and Galilee of the nations. All of these things filled or tied to the Christmas story. It's not just a few isolated verses, my friends. It's much, much detailed prophecy that ought to boost our confidence in the Word of God. Indulge me for just a few more minutes. 
when we read the Christmas story, maybe we have some questions. I want to share with you three questions that I know I had when I've read these this uh, narrative of Christ's birth and His early life. And the answers are given very clearly in Messianic prophecy. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Some of this stuff I'll elaborate more upon in the coming weeks. The, ma- the Magi, or the wise men, they came from the east, from Persia to Jerusalem. Matthew 2, 2, saying, Where is He that is born King... Not just king, but king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Why were the Magi following a star to Judea? These weren't Jews, these were Gentiles. Why were they following a star to Judea and asking about not just the king, but the king of the Jews? You see, these wise men and these astrologers studied the stars. That was what they did. They saw anomalies in the heavens all the time. Girls, stop it. I'm preaching God's Word. You better straighten up, okay? They studied the stars. They studied anomalies. They they made predictions. It was the astrologers that came into Nebuchadnezzar's court that weren't able to give him any direct answers when it came to his dreams. Daniel had to step in with the Word of God to clear it up. But why did these wise men follow a star? And why did they come east asking for not just a king, but the king of the Jews? It's because they had studied the Scriptures. They saw the star and they studied the Scriptures. Nebuchadnezzar had his dream. The astrologers couldn't figure out what it was, but Daniel knew the Scriptures. Daniel had it revealed to him by the Word of God. And he could clear it up. The Word of God cleared it up. And when it cleared it up, they headed east looking for not a king, but the king of the Jews. There's a very important prophecy in the Torah, the books of Moses, that they undoubtedly would have known and would have sent them east. Turn to Numbers 24. This is during the whole saga with Balaam, the prophet that was hired to curse Israel, but he couldn't do it. He disobeyed God. He didn't preach the whole outline God gave him. It was a saga about a person that spoke truth and even preached true messianic prophecy, but he died and went to hell. Perennial false prophet. But as as, uh, Balaam is um, prophesying about Messiah here in chapter 24, he says this. Look at verse 15. Can you stop with with the plastic, please? Put the, put the ornaments down. Thank you. And he took up his parable, verse 15 of chapter 24, and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance and having his eyes open. Balaam saw God in a trance, in a vision. I shall see Him but not now. In other words, He's here, but then He's not. I shall behold Him, but not nigh. In other words, but very distant. So what He's saying is, He's here, and then He's not, but I see Him again and He's far distant. There shall come a star out of Jacob. Jacob is synonymous with Judea. 
Jacob is Israel. He's the father of Israel, the tribes. A star shall come out of Jacob, comma, and a scepter, that's the rod of a king, shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the cities of Sheth. A lot of the religious Jews would say, you can't show me the Torah has more authority than the rest of the Old Testament. You can't show me two comings of Messiah in the Torah. Well, that's absolutely not true. It's right here. It's right here. You see, the wise men had studied the Scriptures and knew that this prophecy associated a star in Judea with the coming of Messiah. That comma there is very important. Christ came as a star out of Jacob, His first coming. He comes again as a scepter out of Israel. They knew the writings of Moses and they followed a star because they knew a star was associated with a king of the Jews. The Scripture had prophesied it. That's why they went east looking for the king of the Jews. Why was Herod so afraid and troubled? When they came to him, Messiah was supposed to be good news for the people of Israel. Herod was a puppet king put there. His genealogy was messed up. He wasn't truly Jewish per se. He was a pagan king that catered to the Jews and remodeled their temple. He was a puppet king put there by the Romans. He was a greedy man. Why was he so afraid and troubled? Why was he so angry that he would slay the children of Bethlehem? When these wise men came saying, we are looking for the king of the Jews, we've seen a star in the east, he was troubled. And then they went to search the Scriptures. Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? It's amazing that the scribes and the religious leaders had to search for it. They didn't know it. They had to search for it. It wasn't on the tip of their tongue. And it's quoted there in Matthew, Micah 5.2 that, that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But Herod was very disturbed. Turn to Micah chapter 5. There's a much bigger context here. Lots in the book of Micah about the coming kingdom and God's restoration of the nation of Israel. In fact, if you go back into chapter 4, the greater context begins in chapter 4, verse 11, and goes through the end of chapter 5. You can't pull chapter 5 verse 2 out and let it stand alone. It all goes together. And this much greater context truly gave Herod cause for concern. If you look at verse 11 and 12 and 13 in chapter 4, days are prophesied when many nations are gathered against Israel and she is defiled. But God has a purpose. He gathers the nations against Israel because He's going to overthrow the heathen nations. When the wise men came to Judea looking for a king, all the Gentile nations had been gathered against her. She was a Roman province. Romans and Greeks and people from all places were in the land. It wasn't a Jewish state. It wasn't a Jewishdom. And this prophecy said that God would bring all these nations, make it a cup of trembling so He could overthrow them and set up His king. Then you get down into chapter 5. It talks about Messiah, verse 1. The judge of Israel would be smitten with a rod upon the cheek. Messiah would be initially rejected. Who is He? Who's the one that will be smitten on the cheek? Verse 1. 
Verse 2, But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Who is the judge that will be smitten upon the cheek? The one born in Bethlehem. So, this Scripture teaches us that He'd be born in Bethlehem, that He'll be smitten upon the cheek, and as a result, He'll give up the people of Israel for a time. Verse 3, Therefore will He give them up until the time that she which travails has brought forth. Remember, there's two travails in Israel's history. It was travailing when Christ came the first time. It'll be travailing when it comes the second. The rabbis call the time of Jacob's trouble what we know as the tribulation as the birth pangs of Messiah. He'll give them up. That's the church age. Israel's been blinded. They rejected their Messiah. They smote Him on the cheek until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth, then the remnant of the brethren shall, be, shall return unto the children of Israel. Well, who is this ruler born in Bethlehem? Look at the very last phrase of verse 2. We often skim over this. Ruler in Israel whose what? Goings forth. His coming and going have been of old from everlasting you see, this prophecy doesn't just teach us that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It very clearly teaches us that Messiah is God. His goings forth have been of old, from everlasting. How can the Jew say the Messiah is not God? How can he be so blind? Because he rejected his king and he's been given up for a time. But there'll come a time when his eyes are open and he's restored. As you continue to read through Chapter 5, it talks about Antichrist when the, when the Assyrian will come into the land and tread in those places. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people. That is exactly what was happening. In Herod's day, the people of Israel were amongst many Gentiles and he relied on the Gentiles to keep his throne secure. And then it talks about in this day, Messiah will come and that God will cut off these enemies and pluck up their, their places and end their persecution. He'll overthrow the Assyrian, which is Antichrist. And then you get down to verse 15. In this time when the Messiah that comes, that was born in Bethlehem, comes to redeem Israel, what will God do? I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard, such as they will never heard, hear, or have never heard before. Verse 15 is what I'm sure gave Herod reason to pause. This is bad. Because if this is Messiah, they're saying He is, then it means that Israel is going to rise up against the Gentiles, heathen are going to be slain, and there goes my kingdom. So we've got to make sure this doesn't happen. And so he, when he was deceived of the wise men, he wanted to know where the Christ child was born because he so foolishly thought he could kill this king of the Jews and prevent any of this stuff from happening. Just like the Muslims who put a cemetery outside the wall of the eastern gate of Jerusalem thinking that, well, 
You know, Jews won't come near dead bodies, so you know, Messiah's not going to come in this way because there's a graveyard. But if He does and there's a resurrection, all these Muslims are going to raise up from the grave and we'll have an army to stop Him. Foolishness! Foolishness. But He was troubled because the coming of Messiah means that the heathen will be overthrown and that the land will be restored to a mighty king who will put down wickedness. And boy, was He wicked. That's why the wickedest of leaders and rulers today claim the Bible's a fairy tale, but they're so afraid of it. And they won't let it into their countries and they want it out of their schools because the demons that possess these people know it's true. And they keep hoping and hoping and hoping they can stop it. Impossible. Why was Simeon waiting in the temple? Turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 27. Now you all asked me to, to teach you on these topics and I agreed to do it. And I'm going to do it right so you'll have to indulge me with the time. Turn to Luke verses three, or chapter 3. I mean not chapter 3, chapter 2. I'm sorry. Verse 37. That's not correct. What in the world? Um, 27. Chapter 2, 27. Why did I make my threes twos there? We, we learned uh, a few verses earlier that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and he was a righteous man and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the, the, for the Messiah and the Spirit of God was upon him. And the Spirit of God revealed to him that he wouldn't die until he had actually seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. And then it says in verse 27, and he came by the Spirit into the temple. Now why was he looking for Messiah in the temple? Why wouldn't he maybe scouring door knocking in Bethlehem? Why wouldn't he possibly doing some door knocking up in Nazareth or Galilee. There were prophecies about that. Why was he in the temple and just happened to be there when Mary and Joseph showed up to bring in Jesus to have Him circumcised according to the custom of the law? The answer is very simple. He knew Messianic prophecy. Turn to the prophet Haggai. We use this passage a lot when sharing Christ with the Jewish people to prove that if Jesus is not Messiah, then no one is and God can't be trusted. Here in Haggai, Haggai was sent to the people, the remnant that returned from Babylon and built the second temple or what the Jews call the Migdash, the sanctuary. And if you go back and read in the book of Ezra, when the foundation of the temple was laid and they dedicated to the Lord, there were two types of people in that crowd that day. There were the old men who had seen the first temple, had seen the laying of the foundation. And then there were the young people who had returned. The young ones who didn't know about the first temple, they were rejoicing that this new foundation had been laid. It was a celebration. But for the old men who had known the temple of Solomon, who had known and heard about the laying of its foundation, they wouldn't have been alive back then, but... They would have known Solomon's temple before the Babylonians destroyed it. It wasn't cause for rejoicing. They were weak. 
so that they couldn't tell. The noise was such that you couldn't tell who was weeping and who was rejoicing at that moment. Because they knew the glory of the first house. And they knew that this second Migdash, this second temple that God commanded them to build paled in comparison to the glories of Solomon's temple. And it's in this context, as the temple was built, it was nothing special. Herod remodeled it in his day that made it formidable. And that's what remains today, the western retaining wall of that temple that was rededicated in the days of Haggai. That retaining wall that Herod built is where the Jews pray. But in this context, God told the people who remembered the old temple to be be strong. To not be sad. And He told them why. He told them that this second Migdash would actually be better than the first one. The glory of this second one that paled in comparison with the eye would actually surpass the glory of Solomon's temple. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. Zerubbabel and Joshua, those were the two olive trees, the two lamps in Zechariah 4, that were shadow fulfillments of the two witnesses that come in Revelation. We've talked about them before. Speak now to Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the residue of the people saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it is nothing? Is not this second temple nothing compared to Solomon's temple? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye the people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. I've made a promise and I'm going to keep it, God said. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once in a little while, To God, a little while is 500 years later. God doesn't operate on our time schedule. But in eternity, 500 years is a little, little while. Yet, once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this, that is the second temple, this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. God said there's going to be a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He shook the heavens and the earth when Christ hung on that cross. There was an earthquake. Even the tombs opened and people got up out of the graves. But, He said that this second house will actually surpass the glory of the first one because in this second house, the desire of all nations will come. He'll actually set foot in here. Messiah never set foot in Solomon's temple, but he'll set foot in this second house. The desire of all nations. We use that phrase in one of the hymns we sang this morning. That is Messiah. What is the desire of all nations? The desire of all nations, it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative. If we, if we boil it down to brass tacks, it's righteous rule. Now, liberals and conservatives have a whole lot different idea of what righteous rule is. But everybody wants peace 
and righteousness where we can dwell without strife. That is the desire of all nations. That's why Buddha himself looked for a Messiah and prophesied it. That's why the Hindu sages have talked about it. That's why uh, the, the, the Tibetan Buddhists are looking for a future Dalai Lama to clear it all up. That's why even atheists look for a world or a world superman to clear it all up. That's the desire of all nations. The Jewish rabbis try to say that the desire of all nations here is a reference to money. That there'll be money in this temple. <laughs> Foolishness. Blind interpretations. But in that second temple, the desire of all nations came... And therefore, the glory of that second Migdash surpassed the one of Solomon. Now here's the issue. Here's the problem. In A.D. 70, 70 A.D., the second Migdash, the this house spoken of by the prophet was completely destroyed. It's gone! So if Messiah didn't come before 70 A.D., if He didn't come before the destruction of the second Migdash, then God cannot be trusted. But He did. And why was Simeon in the temple? Because he was looking for peace and he knew that the prophet said that the desire of all nations that he wanted to see would come into that second temple. And guess what happened? Mary and Joseph brought him in there to be circumcised. Later, he went in there twice and cleaned it out, showing the people that you trade and you got all this money and all these money changers. The silver and the gold is mine. And I'm going to clean it out, just like this prophecy. Okay? When he perished, the temple was uh, rent in two and the earth shook. All this is fulfilled. And that's why Simeon the temple, because he knew the Prince of Peace would set foot in there and bring peace if but for a time. At some point before that second temple, temple ceased to be. That temple's gone now. So either Jesus was the Messiah for the people of Israel or God's a liar. And we'll often point to this passage with Israelis and say, look, Christ, Messiah, had to come before the Migdash was destroyed. And they'll acknowledge that. Well, who was it? That's why Simeon was in the temple. And then finally, and I'll wrap up with this, why were there Jews in Jerusalem when Jesus was born who were, quote, looking for redemption, unquote? Why were there these people looking for redemption, the people to whom Anna the prophetess spoke of Messiah. If you go just a little farther here in Luke chapter 3, after this thing with Simeon, there was one Anna, verse 36, a prophetess and the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about four score and four years. She'd been a widow for 84 years. So this woman was old. Which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. She had had a husband for seven years and he died at a young age. And so she'd been a widow for 84 years. And she served the Lord in the temple, fasting and praying. And she coming in that instant when Messiah came and they came to circumcise, she saw what was going on and she gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. And then she went out and opened her mouth and spake to all them that looked for, for redemption in Jerusalem. So there was a remnant of people in Jerusalem 
that were looking for redemption. They knew the time was right. A, number, a great number of people. Why? Why did they think this was any different than the days when the Greeks were here and this and that and this and that? I mean, there had been dark times in Israel before, but why were they thinking the time was close for Messiah to come? Well, it's because they knew the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel 9, 24-27. They knew the 70 weeks prophecy that we've already spoken about in detail in here because of our study in Revelation. You see, God told Daniel not to worry about the end of the 70 years captivity. I'm going to show you the, my whole plan and purpose for Israel in which I will accomplish six things and I will restore her and remove iniquity from her. And then Daniel was told that from the going forth of a commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, what we're given in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, which was given by Artaxerxes the king in 454 B.C., from that going forth, there would be 70 weeks of years in which God would finish His plan and purpose for Israel. 490 years. And from that commandment until Messiah the Prince would be 69 weeks. It would be 483 years. 483 years from 454 B.C. in the month Nisan until Nisan 10, Palm Sunday, A.D. 30 was exactly 483 years. So we're about 30, 34 miles, or 34 years out from that. And people were looking for redemption in Jerusalem because they knew Messiah was supposed to come 69 weeks of years after the commandment was given to Nehemiah by the king of Persia to rebuild the city. They knew the time was close. Not everybody, but people that knew the Scriptures knew it. And they were waiting. And of course, the culmination, the one time Israel accepted Christ as the prince was when He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then we're told after those 69 weeks, Messiah would be cut off and the people of Antioch would come and destroy the temple and there would be a long period of war against the Jewish people. A gap. The church age between the 69th and the 70th week. And when that church is taken out, that clock for that last week starts ticking again and we have the tribulation and then we have Messiah recognized and He returns and fulfills the promises. They were looking for redemption in Jerusalem because they knew the prophecies. They were expecting because they believed the Word of God and expected it to come true. Messianic prophecy is so tied not just to the birth, but to the life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's so tied that we can't ignore it. Not just a few verses, but it's throughout the Old Testament. That's why the apostles preached from it and testified that Jesus was Christ from Samuel all the way through the prophets, undoubtedly highlighting the prophecy there of Hannah his mother. And Messianic prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Literally. We need to be like those who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem because we see the signs. We know God's plan for the church. We've studied it in Revelation 2 and 3. We see the signs of the times. Are we waiting? Are we expecting? Are we finding comfort in God's Word? Or are we just living our lives somewhere? The best way we can celebrate the Christmas story or the Advent story is to be just like those people in Jerusalem. 
looking for redemption, waiting for it. A light burning in a dark place, just like Jesus was in His earthly ministry. That's nothing passive. My friends, it's active. A light can't burn unless it's upright, unless it takes a stand when no one else will, and unless there's an open channel for oxygen. That means if we're going to burn a light, we can't be laying on our side. We've got to take a stand when no one else will, and we've got to open our mouth and speak the truth. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation even forever. God keeps His Word. God preserves His Word. And He proved it when Messiah came the first time. He'll prove it again when He comes for His church and when He restores Israel. And when the child that was born is the son that was given and sits upon the throne of David just like the angel told Mary.